tonight on Arena. Matthew Nolan on composing brand new music for Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds and Nell Hensi and Leela Coleman on their new film Falling for the Life of Alex Whelan. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the program at RTE Arena. Halloween is almost upon us, and my first guest this evening certainly has a penchant for horror. Composer Matthew Nolan has already scored such unnerving films as Metropolis, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, The Night of the Living Dead, Dracula, and The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. This time, he's gone for something a little bit closer to the modern day with Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds, one of the scary and unsettling of films where one species, birds, turns on another, us, the humans. The original had one hell of a soundtrack, but believe it or not, it did not have a musical score. Birds, of course, were central to the story. In fact, it all began with some love birds. Here are Melanie and Mitch, played by Tippy Hendren and Rod Taylor, and a couple of love birds to boot. I wonder if you could help me. What? I said, I wonder if you could help me. Yes, what is it you're looking for, sir? Lovebirds. Lovebirds, sir? Yes, I understand there are different varieties. Is that true? Oh, yes, there are. Well, uh, these are for my sister for her birthday, you see, and uh, as she's only going to be 11, I, I wouldn't want a pair of birds that were too demonstrative. I understand completely. Uh, at the same time, I wouldn't want them to be too aloof, either. No, of course not. Do you happen to have a pair of birds that are just friendly? Oh, I think so. Now then, let me see. Aren't those lovebirds? No, those are uh, redbirds. Oh, I thought they were strawberry finches. Oh, yes, we call them that, too. Here we are, lovebirds. Those canaries. Doesn't this make you feel awful? Doesn't what make Having all these poor little innocent creatures caged up like this? Well, we can't just let them fly around the shop, you know. <laughs> no, I suppose not. Is there an ornithological reason for keeping them in separate cages? Well, certainly. It's to protect the species. Yes, I suppose that's important. Especially during the molting season. It's a particularly dangerous time. Are they molting now? Some of them are. How can you tell? Well, they... Get a sort of tang dog expression. There we go, Tippy Hendren and Rod Taylor as Mitch and Melanie in Alfred Hitchcock's The Bird, which will be screened, The Birds, which will be screened at the National Concert Hall on Tuesday, November the 7th, with a new score composed by Matthew Nolan in collaboration with Sean McAleen, Sharon Feeland, and Evan Arset. I'm delighted that Matthew is with me in, in studio this evening. And we'll come to your score in just a minute. That is an extraordinary scene, both in its dialogue and in what's going on underneath it. Just explain so that we get a hook on it, Mitch and Melanie, and what's going on in the film overall, Matthew. Well, on on a very simple level, this is a film about the the formation of the romantic couple. Um, On several other levels, it's it's the darker underbelly of that, that that unfolds over the course of the movie. And I just love this opening scene when they meet. I mean, it's this is not double entendre. This is triple entendre. Mm. This is a kind of delicious um, in terms of kind of sexual innuendo. Uh, and it's, it's, it's a wonderful way to introduce us to uh, a kind of rising tension 
um, between these two characters because it's that tension um, that Hitchcock feeds on and, and kind of subverts mm. over the course of the film. Of course, the Tippi Hendren and Rod Taylor are certainly important there. The birds in the background are vital to the scene as well. Well, the, 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 it's part of the sonic palette um, that, that Hitchcock introduces us to. Um, and, and sound effect and sound design um, was really important to him for this particular film. He, he, made, he made a brave move to, to minimise music in any kind of formal sense. Mm. So everything we hear takes on extra um, importance and extra kind of dramatic effect. Yeah, uh, I, I was kind of surprised to, to read and hear... There is no music score per se from Bernard Herrmann in this particular film. It is purely a soundscape that he, and you could say composed. He, he absolutely composed and I think we need to think about it in, in very much mm. in those terms. Um, Herrmann was hired as a, as a consultant. Um, what we hear is a very delicately balanced sound world. Um, what we also hear are the sounds of the birds that are very naturalistic. We also hear sounds of the birds that have been processed mm. and that are synthetic and that use an early synthesizer called a tritonium. Um, so this is electronic music um, in a lot of ways, an early example of electronic music within the, a mainstream Hollywood film. And then, of course, there is the one moment in the middle of the film where we hear uh, the children in the school singing an old mm. Scottish folk song. Um, and I often think it, it, it's particularly stark and unsettling because we haven't heard any music, formal music up until that point, and it really stands out. Uh, the other thing that strikes me from my memory of the film is moments of silence, you know, which are just punctuated by maybe the sound of one bird arriving onto the playground or one of the, 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 the swings or whatever in the playground, then a second bird, and then the noise begins to grow. But the silence is as eerie and as uh, unsettling as the, the sound effects. Well, that, that's part of the challenge. And I think that's what, what, what I think places this film uh, partly in the world of, of the avant-garde. Um, it's, it's how it uses um, space, sonic space, and how, how it uses kind of visual space. It's where it sets the story, you know, in this kind of remote bay in, in, in Northern California, which mm. um, very much reminds me of, of Connemara. It feels like being in, in, in the west of Ireland, um, very, very isolated. Uh, and I think, you know, not having music, not guiding an emotional response or a dramatic response was what Hitchcock wanted to do. And I think oftentimes when we, when we listen to music or hear music in a film, it's helping us shape and mm. almost control how we're emoting. You take that music away and all of a sudden a huge amount of responsibility shifts onto you <laughs> as the viewer and as the listener. Um, and, and you're not sure how to interpret what it is that's unfolding before you. And Hitchcock did that as just, it's an added kind of uh, tool in his armory um, for terrorising the audience. Yeah, um, of course, famously, one could say he terrorised Tippi Hedren on, on this particular movie as well. How does that feed into what you're doing musically? Talk about that dynamic, first of all, his treatment of her uh, and his treatment of women in general. You can hardly say that this film is, is a feminist um, in any way, in a feminist tribe. Uh, I, I, I don't think so. I, I, certainly not in any overt sense. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it could be said that what happens to Melanie over the course of the film in a lot of ways mirrors the experience of female actors in Hollywood um, and also female actors or female characters within the narrative space of, of, of Hollywood cinema. Um, because what Melanie does at the start of the film is she dares to be sexually forward. She makes the first move, um, you know, to, 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 to pursue Mitch. Um, and in a lot of ways, 
this seems to unleash all of this, you know, excessive psychosexual mm. kind of energy. Now we can overdetermine this if we really want to, but I do think Melanie um, gets brutalized um, within the narrative space of the film, and then of course there's all of the other stuff that has emerged over time about her relationship with 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 Hitchcock, both on this film and on Marnie. Yeah, and do you do you feel there was a kind of brutalization there as well? I, I think so. Um, I think if you look at one of the the, the, the later scenes um, where Hitchcock allowed her to be physically brutalized, um, you know, so we we, we kind of see. I, I don't give too much away mm. about the end of the film, although many of us have seen it. Yeah. Um, but there is a scene where she's physically assaulted by the birds, um, and it's for real. It's actually happening. Hitchcock didn't call cut, and he was one of those directors who. We, we can call into question his motivation, um, but this is clearly a, 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 yeah. a, a misogynistic um, kind of gesture. What then, when it comes to composing music, you've, you have a lot of challenges then to meet in the in the yeah. composition of music, yeah. not least of which is perhaps one could argue uh, Hitchcock's desire for there to be no music. Uh, well, we're trying to keep in the spirit of that, um, where formal through composed music with a recognisable harmonic structure or melodic lines is something that we're trying to avoid. Um, what we will do is present something quasi-musical to kind of open up this story mm. world and maybe even to close it down. We've to, we still have to figure out exactly how we want to, to, to leave the audience feeling. It's, it's one of the most bleak and downbeat endings to a film that's ever come out of Hollywood. Um, but, but for us, it's, it's starting with quiet. It's starting with sense of location um, and what you might hear in that space and at that location in Northern California. And that's informing musical decisions and sonic decisions. And have you integrated the Herman Hitchcock soundscape of the original film? Have you integrated that into what you're doing with the music? Absolutely. Very, there's very little of that, really. Um, you know, we have the sound effects of the birds and then we have a few scenes where there's that added electronic synthesized version mm. or, or um, processing of those naturalistic sounds. But that's minimal. And um, everything else is around this stark, lean, s super minimalist sound design. And as you said yourself, lots of space, lots of silence. So it's about enhancing that sense of atmosphere and that sense of dread through a, a manipulation of frequency in a lot, in a lot of ways. And um, we don't want to be too intrusive, but at the same time, uh, what I want to do is just intensify the terror. <laughs> okay, so obviously, when you're talking about manipulation of frequency and things like that, there's, there's a large amount of electronics and, and, syn and synthesizers involved in the making of this music. What I, I think there are some tra traditional, in inverted commas, instruments in there as well. We'll, we'll definitely use per percussion. Um, uh, Sean McElaine will, will play clarinet, but it will be processed. Um, you, you'll be here, you'll see instrumentation that looks familiar, but it's not going to sound mm. familiar. And I guess um, in some ways the, the, the clarinet, you could argue, it has a kind of a bird-like sound to it, um, certainly when it's distorted in some kinds of way. Let's listen to a little section from that you, that you sent in to us. This is called The Bird's Mix that you put together for us just to listen to, to get a sense of the, the soundscape that you're creating. Thank mm -hmm. you. 
Quite an extraordinary set of sounds in the midst of all of that. This is uh, Matthew Nolan uh, with me this evening talking about the, sa- the the music that he has composed to go along with Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds. And I was asking you as we were listening to that, Matthew, what instruments am I hearing? I could hear the, quite definitely the plucking of an electric guitar. Yeah, a, a very simple uh, guitar line that, that, that never resolves. Um, and that, that's another kind of key approach that we've, we've kind of embraced is to never reach any point of musical resolution. It's almost anti-musical mm. um, in, in that sensibility. Um, I would also say that it is very much a, a kind of collaborative effort as well. And, you know, you hear my guitar there, you hear, you know, some of Sean's production decisions you hear a beautiful field recording that Sharon made in, in Connemara, of all places, um, last year. Um, and also, so that was the kind of the sea sound that yeah, we were it's hearing almost white noise that yeah. you hear, um, but but is a, is familiar but unfamiliar at the same time. And I think it's that process of defamiliarization that we're 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 looking to embrace through 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 sound. And then of course Ivan Orshet's uh, wonderful guitar, which almost has a bird-like quality. Yeah, because I thought that I when I was asking what is what's the second guitar that we could hear in the background, I didn't know it was a guitar. I thought it might have been some kind of processed clarinet. But what's he doing to make his guitar sound like that? Uh, that that's the use of of granular delay um, so it basically it takes the initial um, signal or the initial set of notes mm. and it takes them apart and kind of flings them back in a really random way um, it, it, you, you mentioned about um, it, it makes you think of Connemara so uh, interesting that Sharon as you, as you mentioned uh, Sharon Feeland uh, has put in the sound of the sea from Connemara there Connemara and California are not necessarily two places that you would match with each other. Is the California that Hitchcock is giving us in the birds a very different type of California? Uh, I'm I'm not so sure. I mean, certainly in terms of the 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 the, the small kind of rural town, mm. uh, yes, it is different. You know, this is this is the United States in the early 1960s. It's 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 almost a different universe to what you would have experienced in the west of Ireland, but the landscape is the same. Um, and th- and that's what uh, struck me, um, was just that sense of ruggedness, of of isolation, of you know being on on a precipice, being at a threshold, um, and that's what we are at at the birds. We're at a threshold where something goes awry in the mm. fabric of reality as, as as we know it. I suppose that's what, what I was saying. Is it's a different type of California? Perhaps I'm talking about if we think of films of. Hollywood films, particularly before this era, they're often studio films, were not out on location and were certainly not out in a bleak landscape the way Hitchcock brings us out in this film. He, he does, and, and he, he goes to, he takes great care in leading us around this space. In fact, one of the most pivotal moments in the whole film and really establishes um, this kind of quasi Oedipal drama that mm. unfolds is, uh, is Melanie's trip across the lake. Um, in, in the little in the little in the little powerboat, um, and it ha- happens in almost complete silence, um, but it lasts for five or six minutes, and it's an extraordinary sequence in the film where we um, become aware of Melanie's motivations, and then we s- we get eyes on Mitch seeing what Melanie is doing, yeah. and of course this sets in motion <laughs> a remarkable series Absolutely. of events. And I, I must say, and this will be performed live. This, the, the, the film will be screened uh, yes. in the National Concert Hall on the seventh of sure November, will. and you'll be performing. The score life. How different is it then from your Dracula or your <laughs> the the cabinet of Dr Caligari and the other big kind of horror movies that you've often scored in the past? Uh, 
the cabinet of Dr. Caligari presents certain challenges, but because it's silent, yeah, it allows for a, movie, yeah, yeah. A, a, an amount of of, of you know sonic mm. experimentation, um, and you can take a certain amount of creative kind of latitude with with a film like that. Uh, Dracula forced, and it's the same quartet actually that that produced music yeah. for Dracula that's working on this, um, was a little bit more formal and through composed, and, and I think the film was 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 inviting us to respond to it in that way, because as I said to you, I think the birds is feels more like avant-garde right. cinema that, you know, the, the, the music is going to be reflective of that. That sounds very exciting indeed, Matthew. Thanks for coming in to speak to me about it. That's uh, Matthew Nolan speaking to us about Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds, new live score from Matthew, uh, with performances by himself, Sean McAlean, Sharon Phelan and Evan Arsett, if I'm saying Evan's name correctly. Uh, that is on Tuesday, November the 7th at 8pm in the National Concert Hall, nch.ie. We'll give you all of the details there. And we'll stick with the horror theme. On Sunday, the Abbey Theatre goes gothic as we are invited into the captivating world of Bram Stoker's Dracula. For the first time, Stoker's original text will be presented on the stage of the National Theatre. Dracula, A Journey into Darkness is a staged reading of the first four chapters of the gothic masterwork. It recounts the journey of Jonathan Harker, who has travelled to Count Dracula's castle in Transylvania for what he thinks is some rudimentary paperwork to do with real estate. However, the reality is Harker has embarked on a treacherous journey encountering terrified locals along the way who warn him of the malevolent presence that dwells within the walls of Castle Dracula. After his initial welcome to the castle, Harker descends deeper into darkness, experiencing a series of alarming visions that hint at the Count's true horror and intentions. Events get steadily more alarming for him as he ends up locked up in the castle with no means of escape. One morning, it dawns on him that the Count is never present during the daytime. Taking his life in his hands, Harker leaves his room to visit the Count's, which he finds empty, except for a door that lies tantalisingly ajar. At one corner of the room was a heavy door. It was open and led through a stone passage to a circular stairway, which went steeply down. I descended. Minding carefully where I went, for the stairs were dark, being only lit by loopholes in the heavy masonry. At the bottom, there was a dark, tunnel-like passage, through which came a deathly, sickly odour, the odour of old earth newly turned. As I went through the passage, the smell grew closer and heavier. At last I pulled open a heavy door which stood ajar and found myself in an old ruined chapel which had evidently been used as a graveyard. The roof was broken and in two places were steps leading to vaults. But the ground had recently been dug over and the earth placed in great wooden boxes, manifestly those which had been brought by the Slovaks. I went down even into the vaults, where the dim light struggled, although to do so was a dread to my very soul. Into two of these I went, but saw nothing except fragments of old coffins and piles of dust. In the third, however, I made a discovery. There, 
in one of the great boxes, of which there were fifty in all, on a pile of newly dug earth, lay the Count. He was either dead or asleep. I could not say which, for the eyes were open and stony, but without the glassiness of death. And the cheeks had the warmth of life through all their pallor, and the lips were as red as ever. But there was no sign of movement, no pulse, no breath, no beating of the heart. I bent over him and tried to find any sign of life, but in vain. I thought he might have the keys on him, but when I went to search, I saw the dead eyes, and in them, dead though they were, such a look of hate, though unconscious of me or my presence, that I fled from the place, and leaving the Count's room by the window, crawled again up the castle wall. Regaining my own chamber, I threw myself panting upon the bed and tried to think. Scary stuff indeed. Andrew Bennett there reading from Bram Stoker's Dracula and Dracula, A Journey Into Darkness will be at the Abbey Theatre on Sunday, October the 29th. Full information on abbeytheatre.ie. By the time Alex Whelan had become part of my life, he'd already died, is the astonishing opening sentence and premise of Falling for the Life of Alex Whelan, a TV, Whelan, a TV drama in which a couple meet by chance and all too briefly at a cinema in Dublin. Chris Wally and Leela Coleman play Alex and Shohan. Director Nell Hensi also wrote the script, which is based on a short story by Chinese author Yan Gi, and I'm delighted to have Nell Hensi and Leela Coleman with me in studio this evening. It is a wonderful premise that Yan Gi gives us in, in, in the story. The minute you read the story, Nell, did you think, this is something I want to see on screen? Yeah, exactly. Um, my producer and business partner, Claire Mooney, actually came across the story first. She read uh, Lucy Caldwell's um, short story collection, Being Various, and um, Falling for the Life is the first story in that. Mm. And she, she read it, and as soon as she did, she picked up the phone and she called me and she was like, Nell, you have to read this. I think you're going to really like it. Um, and sure enough, she was right. And yeah, what's what's great about the story is it's already so cinematic off the page. Um, it, it's deals with so many interesting themes mm. and the characters are brilliant so we just knew we had to bring it to screen Yeah and Leela even even where um, Alex the character of Alex and your character Shohan um, even where they meet has the cinema has cinema involved in it the foreign music no uh, the foreign movies no subtitles group um, you might explain what that group is in the film and how Alex and Shohan meet there Well it's this like artsy film club where they they screen these like international movies but like yeah and then and then because but there are no subtitles there's no <laughs> subtitles so they're going well what do you think it was about and it's like anyone's game really <laughs> yeah and so if you don't know the language you you, you have a hope what is the movie that that they're watching or that they have watched uh, as as at the beginning of the film an autumn afternoon and and tell us a little bit about that movie how well known is it and did you go watching the whole film for the sake of the character well the thing is I can't tell you much about it because I watched it without subtitles <laughs> <laughs> So you really were method acting. I was I was going full in with the research, yeah. <laughs> so you, you had to do what Johan did, but Johan would probably have understood what was going on in the movie, would she? I think she had she'd have a much better grasp of like 
you know, someone who does that regularly as a hobby, mm. she'd have a much better grasp of being able to follow it, I think. Yeah, well, let's have a listen to a, a clip which is just after you as Shohan and Chris Wally as Alex have watched the movie and you've been sitting beside each other purely by accident and you want to have a chat with each other. Hey, I'm Alex, by the way. I'm Shohan. Shohan? Am I saying that correctly? It's Xiaohan. Pronounced Xiaohan. Xiaohan. Yeah. That's really beautiful. Thank you. What does it mean? So I told him what it meant, and he said it was a great name. And I nodded humbly to accept yet another round of applause for my culture and my smart arse ancestors. We talked for ages about the weather, wet as always, where he was from, Kilkenny, where I was from. Tipperary, Uh, you don't say. I've a cousin living in Nina. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Sure, everybody has a cousin living somewhere. That's um, Chris Wally as Alex Whelan and Leela uh, Leela Coleman as Shohan in the film that we're speaking about this evening, uh, Falling for the Life of Alex Whelan. And almost immediately, you know, there's this lovely connection between the two of them. What on earth was she doing not kind of just going on off to Whelan's with him when he asked her? I feel like it was a knee-jerk reaction for her. Mm. I, I think when we were discussing her character before, I feel like the reason why she just completely like clung to this idea of yeah. Alex was that I think she's usually the person who people go up to and like, oh, is your mate single? Do you know what I mean? As opposed to people asking her directly. And I think that's because she fits outside of like mm. the, the beauty standards being a person of colour. And she, he is the first, uh, very, she very seldom uses the name Shohan. Her mother has insisted on her using the name Claire Collins when they, when they come to Ireland, to, to live in Ireland. She's constantly asked about her, her Chinese background. Both yourself and Nell have, I can see, a, an ethnicity of, which is not Irish within you. So you might explain that and wh- how much of Shohan's experience you have had yourself, Leela. Well, you know, like I said, it's, it's white noise at this point. Like, it's not offensive. It's not hugely offensive. Mm. But then sometimes people make the whole conversation about where you're from and your English is so good. And it's it's quite shallow conversation. It's like the suggestion is the most interesting thing about you is that you're foreign, which you'd, you'd hope you'd be a bit more interesting mm. than that, you know. But it's the first it's the first question. Is it an experience that you have had now as well? Yeah, I think it's definitely something that resonated with me when I even first read the the story. Um, I'm half Filipino. And I think um, what's really interesting about the story is how it kind of um, explores between the different generations as well, what um, the different cultural values between um, Western society and a lot of Asian cultures and um, yeah, it's something that I, I have experienced as well. Um, there's not that many Asian Irish directors in the film industry, so mm. it's interesting to explore those stories as well. And had, have you had any experiences close to Shohan? So, for example, Leela, do you have another name that you use at home or that was used at home that you now don't use? Uh, I have my Chinese name that I don't use and I actually, I can't really pronounce it properly because I can't speak Mandarin. So that's kind of like a point of tension with mm. me that I don't really know how to pronounce it. Because if I try to tell it to someone, they'll be like, oh, how was that said? And I, I actually am not sure, to be honest. Yeah, so you, you, you've have, you had some of her experience, but in a different way. I was really impressed, now by the, the nature of what you've packed into 26 minutes here. Short stories often make great movies. Did you even have to pair back from the Yangi story to get it into the, the format for Storyland? 
Yeah, we did actually. There were there was some scenes that that ended up being cut just for the the time mm. frame. But um, what like when Claire and I first came across the story, there was there was so much in it that we we didn't. Like, it's quite a straight adaption. We don't deviate very much from the short story because so much of it is already there. And it's it's already so well suited for screen, even the way Yang writes dialogue and, and how the characters meet and such. So, yeah, we kind of stayed quite true to the source material. And, and you're talking about yourself and Claire there, Claire Mooney, your producer. This is your first TV special from your own production company. Tell me a little bit about the production company. Yeah, so it's uh, it's called Pure Development Pictures. Um, Claire and I both met while we were doing our masters in IDT. We did uh, producing together and we've always wanted to uh, set up a company together. We have very similar tastes in film and TV and yeah, we're just really excited by by new stories and and new voices and um, this is kind of just an extension of, of the idea of having uh, letting artists have creative autonomy over their their own stories. Did you did you talk with Yang Gi at all around the adaptation or did you just take the story and get the permission to use it? No, um, a bit of both. Um, we did meet with Yang and um, and she's just the most amazing collaborator and um, it was it was great to talk to her and get a sense of the characters and such from her. But she was also very much like, you know, this is your story now. This is your interpretation. Mm. She was so supportive in that way. And even for the actors and stuff like the characters became theirs. And, and she's yeah very proud of the, the film uh, as well. And finally to you, uh, Leela, uh, obviously people will know Chris Wally from The Young Offenders, but there's such an emotional quality to both his and your performance. How emotional an experience was it making the film? Because it's very moving to watch at times. Yeah, I think there's there's some scenes I was really nervous about because they're so like intimate. But I think we work together really well as a team. And like, I was nervous, especially about scenes that were quite like crying and stuff because it's not like a skill that comes easy to me. But it's kind of like as as actors in really vulnerable scenes, you have to kind of like hold each other and look after each other, and like extend emotionally on your end so that they can hit their like crying or yeah, whatever it, it is they need to do you it know? is a real emotional intimacy that's involved between the two of you and it, it does it reads it reads beautifully so thanks to, so much to both of you for coming in and speaking to me about this evening uh, that's Falling for the Life of Alex Whelan one of three TV dramas made under the banner of the Storyland initiative of RTE going out weekly on RTE 2 and it's also available on the RTE player The Festival of Making is a 10-day event held in the RHA Galleries in Dublin. It will celebrate the process of making art and the role of the, the Academy has played in peer learning during its 200-year history. Over the course of the Festival of Making, there will be live portrait painting, daily demonstrations by leading contemporary artists, giving insight into how their work is made, and there will be masterclasses by artists as well. One of the artists taking part in the festival is Joy Gerard. Delighted that she's with me in the studio this evening. And in fact, I was just checking... It's actually tomorrow. It is tomorrow. It is tomorrow. That your major um, partaking will will happen. So what are you going to be doing tomorrow? What are you going to be demonstrating or involved in? Uh, Well, I make huge paintings, often about protests or about mass uh, resistance events. And these are made with... um, but very black Japanese ink that comes as a solid block of ink. And what I'm demonstrating tomorrow is how to hand grind that ink and and make images from it, basically, with washes and detailing and drying in mm. different kinds of ways. So I will be doing that in the Royal Hibernian Academy at 11 o'clock and at 2 o'clock tomorrow. 
So there, there are two sides to, I suppose, this festival of making. One is that people get to see it actually happening, and I'll come back to that. But for you as the practitioner, you know, who I guess would normally do this in the quiet of your own studio, and you can, if something gets messed up, you can just get, put it to the one side and start all over again. What kind of performance pressure is there on you when it comes to doing something like this? I mean, all of us who are are practitioners, we are very practiced at doing this. But Mm. yes, of course, when you're doing something live and in front of an audience, like anything, like radio, like anything, it can go wrong. It Mm. can go badly wrong. Um, So you are just showing what you do probably every day, multiple times. But I'll be, you know, you are you are doing it in public. Um, So I would probably select something that would be maybe a little bit more straightforward so that I won't necessarily run into problems or glitches. Um, But most of us do this every day and and we have a skill. And and, and I guess the point is there's no point in making it so complex and convoluted that it can't be followed by those who are watching it happen anyway. From, From the other side of that equation, I'm sure you have been part of watching something in the Festival of Making or, or in other previous experiences at the RHA. How, how important is it for people to actually see those processes happening in front of their eyes rather than reading about them or being taught about them formally? I think it's, it, it, you know, it's, it, it's a hands-on, it's a hands-on demonstration. And, you know, as, academ- as artists, as academicians, we very much think through making. Mm. So we may have an idea that, and but we are only able to let that take form through the creation of it. You know, a lot of us are painters. We draw with pencils, with sculptors. I mean, there's all sorts of different ways of making art. But th- but this is really demonstrating the thinking through making. And um, and I think the live, you know, the live uh, um, um, aspect, that ha- aspect yeah. of it is incredibly important that people can see it happening, whether it's just for entertainment or whether it's so that people can imitate it. I mean, most of us will do workshops mm. w- with people on a regular basis as well or, or teach as well. That's a very important part of the Royal Hibernian Academy. And I guess, you know, seeing something done is much better than being told about it, you know, or reading about it. It's a much more, much more immediate experience. You're a fairly new member of of the RHA. When did that happen and how important is that to you? Um, it ha- uh, For me, it happened in late 2018. And I think it was on the back of a really important exhibition for me uh, called Shot Crowd, which was in the RHA in early 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, and as I said, I'm very interested in work about resistance and about protests. And this exhibition uh, was just before was was about protests before Trump had been elected and also about Brexit. So I think it was on the back of that exhibition that I was elected. And for me, it was a really important moment. You know, it was in a moment of acceptance and mm. Um, and an acknowledgement of 20 years of practice as well. So um, for me, the RHA is is a very important part of, of Irish artistic life. And it's, it's also a centre uh, where there's a, a constant turnover of exhibitions and they're all free and they're open to the public. And it's very much kind of part of the city, I think. Some of the other events that you're taking part of us in, in, in part of the festival are making are quite interesting as well. You're having your portrait painted. Who's painting it? And w- sitting for a portrait is, is a whole 
difficulty and ball game of a different kind itself. But sitting for a portrait with people watching you sitting for a portrait adds a, a layer in, I think. So I'll be sitting on Thursday and James Hanley will be painting me. Hmm. Um, so so there's a set of different artists, Una Seeley, Blaise Smith and James Hanley, and each one of them are painting three other artists over hmm. three days. So there's nine portraits and they're painting this on William Orpin's easel. Um, so this is open to the public. I will sit there from 10 o'clock till 5 o'clock in the RHA on Thursday and James will paint me and people can come and watch him painting me and I think I really hope that we can chat and talk as he's doing it because that will be you know that's kind of mm. part of it um, so I mean I've had a couple of portraits done, done, done for me one photographic and one painting so but this is the longest sitting that I will ever have done. And again, I guess that that performative aspect of it is quite interesting is because is quite interesting to me, because I guess that for part of the relationship between the sitter and the painter is getting that ease, getting that uh, communication between each other. And again, having an audience watch that brings a whole new layer to it. I mean, it's a combination of things. I mean, it's a it's a hard thing to do. You do it live. You're not working from a photograph. You are mm. looking at the person. You're sketching the person. You're drawing the tones and the colours. Um, and, uh, you know, mistakes become part of it. And it's... Um, I think it's a fascinating thing for people to be able to watch. Yeah, happening live is it certainly yeah. adds it adds a whole new layer to it. The talk that you're giving on November the first is that that is also part of the um, festival making. This is future acad- academies, or is it something slightly different? It's it's part of the festival. It's it's talking. I'll be talking about my work, about the projects that I've worked on recently, um, and I'll also be talking about what the what my what I kind of feel my place is within the academy, mm. how the academy is changing and becoming more modern in different ways but primarily it's about my work you are you had a residency in new york earlier this year what was involved there uh, it, it, it was a residency in upstate New York with something called the Golden Foundation. And I said, well, what I'm demoing tomorrow is this technique that I've worked with almost exclusively for 10 years, which is uh, grinding black ink. And while I was at the Golden Foundation, I learned how to oil paint. So I am still teaching myself how to oil paint as well. So it was very much a kind of hands-on learning. You keep learning. As an mm. artist, you keep learning, you keep changing, you keep trying new things. And and that um, addition of oil painting then in there, has that started to seep into the practice, into the, what you, the, the work that you're making yourself? To be honest, I've been so busy with commissions and with work that I haven't got to grips with it. I think I need a whole year just sitting, struggling with it. It's a totally different medium. It has a totally different, it's a totally different way of working, a totally different technique. So I went in April, March. Uh, I went in March, came back in April. I was there for a month and I haven't had a chance to get to grips with it yet. And finally... You will be going back to America very soon in connection with your brother, John Gerard, uh, who's and his connection to the U2 work in Las Vegas. Tell us a bit about that. So uh, John has uh, worked with U2 and um, uh, worked with Willie Smith and, and, and the other artists working on it. And he, he has two, he, two incredible artworks as part of the Sphere show, the live show. Mm. Um, um one is called Flair and one is called Surrender. And <clears throat> so two songs, uh, his work is behind it. And of course, 
the sphere is a huge multimedia sphere, so his artwork is absolutely enormous. So well, that's not, that's visuals. no surprise, I suppose. Those who know John's work, particularly from the Galway International Arts Festival and the big glass works out on the bogs and out in the in the in the landscape of Connemara, they'll expect it to be big. It's 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 a huge piece, and it, 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 one of them, uh, surrender, was made specifically uh, for you two and for mm. the sphere. Um, Flair existed before. They're they're both works um, that 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 talk about climate change and ecology, but paired up with the music, uh, they're incredibly impactful and I can't wait to see them. And when are you going or do you know yet? Well, I was hoping to go in December, but apparently the show has been extended into next year, so I will go then. So you have a little bit more time yes, to, to, exactly. to make the arrangements but it's of that. an amazing yeah. achievement for John. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure he would be only too delighted to hear you saying that. Um, thanks for coming into us, Joy. That's Joy Gerard, And you can find out more about the all of the things happening at the Festival of Making at the RHA on the website, which is rhagallery.ie. And now to the next of our RTE short story finalists. On Craigavon Bridge is a tale of a father and a son and a missing greyhound from writer Peter McCauley. Peter is a proud Derry native. He graduated from the Open University in 2018 uh, with a degree, first class honours degree in English literature, English language and literature. His ambition is to develop a creative writing career, setting stories on Derry's streets to showcase his city as a unique, distinctive and compelling backdrop and delighted to be joined on the line now by Peter. Peter, um, y- y- yes, you have chosen your native city as the place to set um, the, your stories and particularly this one. You've chosen Craigavon Bridge. It really is, If you, if you, when I think of Derry, it's one of the first images that comes to my mind. How important a, 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 la- a, a, a dot in the landscape or a, a spot in the landscape is Craigavon Bridge for you? Yeah, absolutely, Sean. It's an incredible, um, it's an incredible piece of work, <laughs> Craig Allen Bridge. It's sort of uh, emblematic of Derry and the incredible architecture that is in the city. I mean, it's, it's physically and aesthetically, it's a beautiful city, and I've always thought that it's the perfect setting for stories. And I certainly intend to set more stories there. I mean, there's a great mix of architecture, like you've the old Georgian house fronts and the late Victorian buildings, and then the the more modern architecture. And just a short way down the river from the old Craig Allen Bridge, mm. you have the new Peace Bridge. So it's kind of Past and future colliding in the in the one city, you know. And and there is something about the Craigavon Bridge in particular. I suppose the two tiers of it that that it's, yeah. it's quite unusual in that respect, really, isn't it? It is. Yeah, it is. It is unusual, but it's such a beautiful structure. I mean, as you say, it is kind of emblematic of Derry for those people who have been visiting. But I suppose in recent times, maybe the Peace Bridge has kind of eclipsed mm. it as the sort of the symbol of the city for people visiting. You know. Right. The the story that you've written then is set on mm. Craig Avon Bridge. Um, a father and and son. Um, yeah. The opening line of the story kind of telling us what happens. They've lost the dog. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But let, let's have a listen. It, it's read by David Pierce. Let's have a, a, a listen to the action. Father and son on the bridge arguing yeah. about why the dog got away on this particular night. You only had to grab hold of the thing. That's all you had to do. There was no holding her, I said. Something must have spooked her, I said. He wiped his forehead. His face was red. Spittle sparkled in the night air as he spoke. He wasn't used to walking. She bolted out through the gate like a bullet, I said. She'd have bolted nowhere if you'd have been holding on to her. You should have had her by the collar like I told you to. Here, up this way. 
And that's David Pierce reading a section from this Peter McCauley story on Craigavon Bridge, one of the 10 finalists for this year's RTE short story competition. And Peter, joining me on the line right now. One of the things that really struck me, about it, it is this conversation between the father and the son. It's the son that's narrating yeah. it and the dog has gone missing. And you can hear in that exchange as read by David Pierce in, that we just heard, Peter, you can hear that there's a certain amount of annoyance there. But the, hmm. one of the things that I really noticed as I read and listened through that opening section of the film, yes, there's annoyance and, the, you know, why did you let the dog go? What were you at? But there's this underlying sadness there all, all the time. Yeah. Maybe you talk to me a little bit about how the story was sparked off. Yeah. Well, actually, the story is actually not based on anything. It's not in any way autobiographical. Hmm. I mean, I've never even owned a dog, let alone a greyhound. I know nothing about greyhound racing. The story actually started as a script called Streaky, which is the name of the dog in the story. Um, it was just this idea, this compelling idea of having a tense father and son relationship, a missing dog on the streets of Derry after dark. I thought those three elements came together to create something very compelling. And um, yeah, as you say, you're quite right. There is a, there's a pathos to the story. There's moments of humour, but there's a pathos of the sadness at the mm. heart of it. And I think it's um, there's something too about the father-son relationship just in general. It's it's just, um, it's, it's, I mean, it has great pedigree in literature. I mean, going back to Shakespeare's Hamlet and mm. other stories like The Road by Cormac McCarthy, the, the, this, this relationship of the father to the son, the duty of the father to the son and the son to the father. And, um, you know, sons are formed in the shadow of their fathers. And this was the father as the earliest image we have of what we might become as men or what we might ultimately rebel against. So it's a very tense relationship. And obviously the, the emotional pivot in the story is about halfway through when mm. we realise that it's actually about the father and his own father. So it's a father-son relationship within a father-son relationship. Yeah, which I think it, adds layers of dimensions oh, to it, you know. Oh, yeah. I, I, that that moment is, without, I won't go into the specifics of how you realise it, but the moment yeah. at which it kind of makes you realise, of course, your own yeah. father was a son <laughs> as well, and he had yeah. a father. Uh, and it, it, it really has such a strong emotional pull in it. Um, what, yeah. what switched it from the, the dialogue that it would have been, I guess, between a father and a son in a script to this singular voice of the son telling us, which I think adds to that realisation of the father thinking of his own father? Yeah, absolutely. I think there were some crucial changes that I made from the script to the story. One of them actually was that in the script, the characters are named. In the story, they're completely anonymous. And I think that adds the sense of, uh, the sense of absence that the story has. I think it, it comes down to really a, a comment on the short story form itself. I mean, uh, the short story is the art of the, the suggestion and the art of restraint and economy of language. And it's what we suggest. We don't have the space that the novelist has to develop character or develop complex backgrounds we have to just take a snapshot it's almost like the literary equivalent of photography we're just taking a snapshot of a moment and um i think the the, the short story was perfect for this particular story because mm. this is really just a snapshot we don't know much about this father and son's background we don't know a lot about the relationship that we sense there's a tension we don't know what happens afterwards it's just a snapshot of a moment in time and this and this, this this relationship you know and I know that, you, as I said in the introduction, you're very keen to, to forge a career uh, as a creative writer. You're also working on three children's books at the moment. That's a very different prospect, I would have thought, from a short story, is it? Absolutely, yeah, it is. I've got three on the go. One's nearly finished, another's about halfway through, and there's another one which is kind of in the early stages. Yeah, it's a very different medium. It's a completely different animal, completely. 
But I suppose I'm just excited by the different literary forms and the restraints that they impose on a writer and what a writer can do in these different forms, like the script, like children's writing, like poetry too. I've had some poetry published as well. Yeah, so I just to, want to kind of keep poetry. Talk to me a little but, bit about, about the poetry, which I, I think has a kind of a science fiction and fantasy leaning uh, within it. Yeah, that's right. I had some poetry published by an Ulster University, in an Ulster University anthology there recently, uh, not so long ago. There's two poems I had written. Uh, they were in a science fiction fantasy genre, so I'm interested in that too. I'm interested in that as well. Is, is the writing of a poem, because it sometimes strikes me that the kind of economy that you need in, in a poem is at least if parallel, perhaps, to the type of economy that's needed in a short story. Yeah, absolutely. Again, it's, it's a, a case of every word counts, every image counts. You have to be very, very disciplined. Um, yeah, it, it, economy of language, economy of thought. And obviously there's other considerations and there's rhyme and meter and the sort of the musicality of poetry too. But I suppose you can bring that into the short story too, you know. So you'll be, you'll be travelling down to us for, for Friday, nights, Friday night's final announcement, I'm hoping, Peter. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, look, we, we look forward to seeing uh, you on that night and to talking to you more, perhaps, and to hearing some more of the story on that evening. And congratulations on the shortlisting, Peter. Thank you so much, Sean. Thank you. That's Peter McCauley. And Peter's story on Craig Avonbridge is one of the finalists of the RTE Short Story Competition 2023. It will be read by actor David Pearce on RTE Radio 1 tonight at 20 past 11 and that's as part of Late Date. You can also read Peter's story and more from the shortlist on rte.ie forward slash culture. Indeed uh, those that have already been broadcast are available. You can listen to them on that website as well. This Friday, October the 27th Arena will bring you an RTE short story competition special broadcasting live from the Pavilion Theatre in Dunlair from 7 o'clock. We'll be joined by the three judges. Singer Susanna Derrickson will be there as will pianist Conor Linehan, actors Rory Nolan and Katrina Niwaraku and all 10 writers for a whistle-stop tour through all of the stories before the announcement of the top prizes. And there is still time to get your tickets. Go to paviliontheatre.ie for full details on that. And that is our lot for this evening. Leah Murphy and Paula Shields researched. Ollie Hamilton was the broadcast coordinator. Carol O'Hare was on sound this evening. And tonight's programme produced by Kay Talk to you tomorrow night, 7 o'clock once again here on RT Radio 1.